KBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, most of you who are regular listeners know that we gave the team a four-day holiday uh, weekend. We did a, a rebroadcast of a conversation I had with country music legend Bill Anderson on Friday, and then yesterday uh, we uh, took the 4th of July off. And it's really good to be back live with you all on this morning, or if you listen in the afternoon, we're certainly glad to be with you as well. And I have to be honest, I kind of, I really miss all of you. I miss the panels. I miss the conversations. Um, I'm not very good at taking time off, and I'm very happy uh, we're back, especially because there's so much to talk about in the news. Yesterday um, was a 4th of July that had, in which we had a lot to celebrate. Uh, there were fireworks displays again, massive crowds around the state, um, the the uh, road race, the Peachtree road race was back in full force and thousands uh, were uh, out either running or uh, watching the uh, race unfold. And then we had the Highland Park mass shootings, which um, overshadowed, I think, just about everything that um, people uh, were feeling on the day yesterday. So I really want to talk about that with the panel today and then move on to uh, a lot more political news. So let's get right to it. Um, Tamara Hellerman, my uh, partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the Tuesday show, senior reporter for the AJC. Tamara, you were in the road race yesterday. You ran in the race. Uh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you so much. Still a little sore after yesterday, but happy to be here. It was really a muggy, awful day. I, I felt bad for uh, the runners yesterday, but you seem to have come through it all right. Yeah, thankfully it was cloudy for, for most of the race, so that made it a little more tolerable, but still a pretty hot and muggy <laughs> day for sure. Well, thank you for uh, being uh, with us today. Stephen Fowler is uh, with us. Stephen, I don't know if you're a runner or not. My, I'm not, so I've never done the road race. Um, you neither, right? <laughs> I did not. My wife ran the road race yesterday for the first time, and I was just drenched in sweat just standing waiting at the finish line for her to be done. So it was definitely hot. <laughs> right. Stephen Fowler, the political reporter for GPB News. I'm glad you're with us. Uh, today as well, Stephen, and the legend, <laughs> the reporter from Columbus, Georgia, who we love having on this show, Chuck Williams. He was in the print business down there for a long, long time, covered politics and a lot more. Now, uh, switching over to television at WRBL-TV, where uh, you report largely on politics, but you don't uh, uh, work on pol political news exclusively, Chuck. How long have you been doing the TV side now? It's been a while. Over three and a half years, and it's been yeah. it's been the hardest thing I've ever done professionally, but it's become one of the most rewarding things I've ever done professionally. And and we should tell um, our listeners, you've really made a mark uh, down there in in the switch to TV. You you have been able to line up interview after interview with candidates across the state for uh, primarily statewide offices as well as local races down there. And uh, we talk about your work often on the show, even when you're not here. So anyhow, thank you for joining us today, Chuck. Good to be here. Um, and we welcome for the first time uh, Kenya Hunter, a reporter for Capital B Atlanta, which is really starting to make a big mark. It's Capital B Atlanta is a subset of the larger uh, news platform, Capital B, which uh, focuses on covering uh, stories in the African-American uh, community. And Kenya, you're a, you're a, you grew up, I think, in Cobb County, right? That's right. And yeah. uh, have li lived here most of your life. So we're glad to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. And unlike the other people here, I didn't, I wasn't in the Atlanta Peach Road Race, but I did do a lot of skating this weekend. So that's what I've been up to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we're really happy to have you with us. 
Tamar, I, I don't even, I, um, for me, the Highland Park shooting has um, a special resonance. I grew up not far from Highland Park. Uh, my uh, sister-in-law, uh, Randy, that's where she's from. She went to Highland Park High School. Her parents ran uh, Larson's Stationery Store, which was for years uh, one of the uh, most highly thought of family businesses in Highland Park. I know that Randy last night was checking all of her friends who are still back there in the community. They're all safe. Um, but th this shooting reminds us there is, you know, some, we've had shootings in synagogues. We've had shootings in mosques. We've had them in churches, in shopping centers. They come out of nowhere and hit any community. You know, it's absolutely heartbreaking and something as like small and quaint and charming and wonderful as a town July 4th parade, like nothing is safe anymore. And it's, you know, a sad moment. I know we're all exasperated and sad and heartbroken by all the recent violence that's been going on around the country um, these last couple months. And just reading that the victims stretched from ages eight to 85 this morning just absolutely broke my heart. So but the question becomes, and, and I'm, I'm really open to hearing your personal reactions to this, but, you know, Stephen, Congress has now passed a, a gun safety measure. It's the best that they're gonna get, we're going to get out of Washington. Um, it's everybody knew, at least on the, probably on the Democratic side of the aisle, those who wanted stronger measures knew this was only the beginning. So, but, I mean, what do we do next, Stephen? Well, I, I think what you're seeing with a lot of things happening in American politics lately, from the Supreme Court decisions to local elections to redistricting and things, is that our country is slowly grinding towards this impasse where we're not really able to get a whole lot done. Things are left to some other mechanism to be done. The Supreme Court says the states must decide. The Supreme Court says Congress must act. And these things... <laughs> But these entities aren't really doing things to affect much change, whether it's gun laws or environmental laws or voting laws or inflation or anything like that. And so it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit of a bummer to be a person living in America right now with the way our politics is going as we keep doing the same formulaic coverage of mass shootings and keep doing formulaic coverage of rights being changed and rolled back and things. And so, uh, honestly, it's a little bit hard. <laughs> it really is. Uh, Chuck, it's interesting because Illinois, according to Every Town for Gun Safety, the organization that has been pushing nationally for gun safety laws, um, says that Illinois is in the top 10 of states in terms of having restrictions on gun purchases and gun ownership. Uh, the problem is they're surrounded by states that are much looser, particularly Indiana, they point out. You know, and I know the first place is to go straight to the gun laws. But, you know, the one thing to me yesterday, <clears throat> excuse me, I had an All-American Fourth of July yesterday. I went to watch Team USA play softball about a mile from my house. I went to a beautiful downtown Columbus, Phoenix City, Alabama fireworks display over the Chattahoochee River. Just a great day. But right before I left the house, I saw the Highland Park. Part news on TV. And, you know, I'm just a normal guy in a normal town. And I was looking at everything yesterday at the softball stadium, downtown along the river, watching the fireworks. You just were aware, more aware of your surroundings. And you weren't really looking at the fireworks or watching mm -hmm. one of the Montana Fouts, one of the best pitchers in, in softball work. You were thinking about other things while you're doing it. And that's the impact this thing's having, Bill, at least from my perspective. Um, Kenya, I want to add an element to this, if I may. I, 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 Capital B uh, this morning, when I went to the website, has an article that I think is really important. It's, it's, the headline is, The Mass Casualty Crime No One Is Talking About. And the article points out that there have been 700 drive-by shootings where four or more people were killed or injured since 2012, and almost 400 of them uh, were uh, had an assault-style weapon 
involved. It's a different form of a mass shooting than we typically think about, but yet another example of the proliferation of, of gun violence. Yeah, I mean, so at Capital B, obviously our mission is to be talking about the ways in which nationwide issues specifically impact Black people. And so I think um, shortly after the Uvalde shooting, we were definitely thinking about how gun violence has been impacting Black communities in special ways and how those things do not tend to make national news and call in the, um, you know, call in the the bills and the and the public health warnings and things of that nature. But um, so yeah, proud of my colleague of uh, Christina Correga who's, in, who's on the national team for that article. But I think we've even seen it in in places here in Atlanta where there's there's a certain type of gun violence that is more interpersonal. It's not ma- it's not a mass shooting, but it's more interpersonal drive by shootings um, and com- and within communities where um, where gun violence has just really plagued the communities. And I think we even saw that. Like sometime early last year when, um, you know, we're in D.C., like I think maybe I think I read that two like most shootings were in a really small percentage of D.C. and black communities. So, yeah, really proud of my colleague for that. But I definitely think when we're talking about gun violence, um, we got to think about who we're talking about and who we're concerned about when gun violence is happening. And oftentimes it is black people who are at a really high risk of death from guns. Tamar, it's still very hard to try to calculate what kind of role uh, gun violence, incidents like Highland Park, might play in our elections this fall. Um, You know, we know that uh, the Abrams campaign certainly is uh, pointing out that Brian Kemp uh, promoted and signed into law the the the, the law that allows for uh, you know uh, open carry or concealed weapons carry without a permit. But but it's really hard to get a handle on whether that's going to be a motivating factor in the election this fall. Absolutely, and I think the problem is that with a lot of voters, memories are so short. I think. You know, now is is July 5th. That's a lot of time between now and November. And we don't know what's going to be at top of mind in October when folks are, are casting early votes and in November, you know, on Election Day. So there's going to be so many different factors that play into this. You know, the economy, healthcare, abortion. This is just one of so many. Um, and it's going to be so different from the primaries when the, the candidates were trying so hard to reach out to their, their base and going for those kind of red meat measures. Now they're, they're trying to appeal to as broad an audience as they can. And I'll be very curious to see where independents and kind of more moderate folks in the middle, where they um, will kind of end up on issues like this. Or will economic issues, which traditionally are kind of the, the leading issues, if those kind of dominate the discussion in October and November. Chuck, what's the what's the sense down your way, down in Columbus and the surrounding counties, um, about uh, the Kemp Law? I mean, there are a lot of people carrying down here. I mean, there's no question. I'm, I know friends that are carrying, um, and I think if you look, and I want to go back to something Kenya said real quick. She was talking about the drive-by shootings and their co- the capital capital B coverage of that. I've covered a lot of drive-by shootings in Columbus and Phoenix City. And there's one thing that's different when it happens in Alabama. In the state of Alabama, there is a law on the books. And you can be charged with capital murder if you shoot somebody and kill them from a car. So that elevates, that law is not on the books in Georgia. But I mean, in the DA's office in Russell County, Phoenix City, almost always, charges capital murder when it is a drive-by shooting because that's one of the statutes in Alabama and they think that's an interesting it's an interesting juxtaposition in the way one state handles it and another state right across the river handles it and I think it's interesting also to see I mean Georgia is a place of contrast and you know what the feeling and sentiment is in places like Columbus and places like Atlanta and places like Macon and Augusta is completely different than the more rural parts of the state where more people maybe do carry and there's less worry about you know, things like drive-by. And so it, it, I think as far as Georgia, the impact of Georgia law goes, fundamentally not very much changes. I mean, we've done reporting, you know, Riley Bunch has done reporting for us about 
uh, weapons carry licenses in Georgia, how few of them get rejected, how many people actually have them. And, you know, fundamentally, there's probably not much that will change with Georgia's law and the restrictions of gun rights being rolled back a little bit, but it's the perception of things. I mean, for Republican voters Mm -hmm. and for especially base voters, there's a perception that Brian Kemp is doing more to, you know, do what the Constitution says and give these rights back and do things. And for a lot of Democratic voters and potentially more moderate voters, it's a perception that in the face of almost daily stories about mass shootings with weapons that the founders could not even have remotely envisioned, there's a perception that the government and Republicans are not doing enough to take care of people's lives and livelihoods. And so I think it just further entrenches the visions that are already there. I don't necessarily think it will move the needle in a meaningful way either direction. Tomorrow? I think what this particular debate on guns and also what the abortion debate in the aftermath of the Dobbs case shows, you know, so many of these decisions are being left to the states because Congress has been unable or unwilling to act. And each state has done their own thing on these various issues. But what it goes to show is just how permeable these borders are. And kind of, even though one state like Illinois on guns, where they really have cracked down and done a lot of different gun control measures, it almost becomes meaningless or much harder to enforce that if all of your neighbors around you, like, you know, Indiana and Michigan and Wisconsin, if they have much more lax gun laws, just like how with abortion, you know, you have a state like Georgia, states like Alabama, Texas, that are really trying to crack down on the procedure, virtually eliminating it. But then you're going to see women who are going to try and travel across state lines to places where it's legal. It's hard for a state, even if they do have a very, um, you know, surefire idea of what they want to do, it becomes very hard for them to enforce that if right next door they're doing something completely different. Absolutely. Kenya? Yeah. I mean, I think as I'm hearing us talk about guns and earlier to what Chuck was saying about how um, in one state you can be locked up for a drive-by shooting, I think aside from charging people for murder, I'm also curious, I see a lot of district attorneys lately in the Atlanta area talk about how gun violence is a public health crisis. And prior to this, I, mm-hmm. I used to be an education reporter and saw specifically how guns affected black children. And now being a health reporter, I'm seeing um, and learning more about how gun violence is a public health crisis. And so and I've seen various DAs say that this is indeed a public health crisis. I know the Fulton County probate judge had her event recently on um, on gun violence. But I, I just want to know what we're doing to treat it as such and what things um, should be put in place um, to make sure that people who are more at risk for death from guns, um, what like what's being done to reduce that risk aside from, I guess, aside from, like, you know, prevention and all of that, aside from putting people in jail, because, you know, people have been put in jail for guns for a long time. So I think I'm just really curious about how, what what are the proper steps to treat this as a, as a public health crisis? Kenya, what you're saying is music to the ears of a, of a guest who has been on our show on a number of occasions, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, formerly a, a very high-ranking official at the Centers for Disease Control, who for about 40 years has been pushing for gun violence to be viewed as a public health issue and who believes that by studying how guns are used, uh, you can find ways to solve uh, the problem. And and for people who've never heard uh, Mark on our show, you can go to our website or you can go to our podcast and, and look back. He was on just as recently as a few weeks ago, right after Uvalde. So, uh, Kenya, I'm glad you you mentioned uh, that. Tomorrow, let's move on uh, uh, to a story that developed last week um, and we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet. And that's what's going on with the special grand jury, uh, the Fulton County Grand Jury, uh, which you've been really plugged into. And um, they've uh, there's now a fight over whether or not uh, William Ligon, a state senator from South Georgia, and uh, Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, uh, are, are ready to honor subpoenas, calling them to testify. Uh, William Ligon was a big election denier, in fact, led the uh, effort, I think, to call a special session, as I recall, to have uh, the legislature look at changing uh, w- w- the outcome of the election. Jeff Duncan, of course, on the other side of this, was never 
in the Trump camp on this, but they both have been fighting the subpoenas to testify. They've been to court and apparently they've had some limited success. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And they're arguing under the Georgia Constitution that legislative immunity, uh, which kind of mirrors Congress's speech and debate uh, clause from the federal constitution, they argue that prosecutors can't question them on a whole lot. Basically, anything that touches on their legislative business. And so they're kind of arguing that, that this is a very sweeping protection. And so that prevents them from being asked, you know, questioned on, on most topics. But DA Willis is arguing that what they were advocating for, or at least William Ligon was, and, and many of his colleagues who are unnamed, but also hinted at in this legal filing, um, and we don't know how many there are, um, you know, she's arguing that since what they were advocating for was decertifying, you know, the will of voters, an election that had been determined, you know, audited, recounted, certified, you know, they, she considers that effort so extreme that that falls outside of what's considered a legitimate legislative duty. So there's very much a back and forth in front of a Fulton Superior Court judge, uh, Judge McBurney, about kind of what is and is not on, on the table. There was a hearing about it on Friday afternoon, and the judge said he would come up with some sort of framework that will determine, you know, he said legislators do have to testify, um, but prosecutors will be very limited in what they're able to ask. He is very concerned about stepping on this idea of legislative immunity, the idea being that you have to protect their speech to debate good ideas and bad ideas in the interest of, of coming up with good legislation at the end of the day. You don't want to chill debate within a legislature, uh, but also making sure that they can be questioned in some sort of limited way. Chuck, William Ligon's not running for re-election. He's, he's been for many for a long, long time one of the most conservative members of the General Assembly, I think it's safe to say. And it was uh, Ligon who helped arrange the Rudolph Giuliani testimony uh, in which uh, Giuliani spread all of his conspiracy lies about the Georgia election, Chuck. Yeah, that, I've been playing that back a year and a half ago and who some of the people were that were telling me, hey, you need to cover this this hearing that Giuliani was doing in Atlanta. And I ne you know, it's one of those things when it's happening, you don't really understand what you're seeing or what you're hearing or what's happening around you. And then you start thinking back, okay, who were the ones that were trying to get me to show up in Atlanta? You know, you need to come up and cover this. And, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot more about what happened with the Giuliani hearing and then what happened with the alternate slate of electors out of Georgia and the other six states, I think. Um, so I think mm -hmm. more and more is going to come out of that. And it sure seems like it's becoming a focus of not only the January 6th Commission, but also the Department of Justice and and here in Fulton County. So it's I think we're still at a state, state team moment of that. And Stephen, I think the go ahead, Stephen. But I was just going to say, you know, the the other thing to remember is that as this was happening in real time, there were no illusions about how much garbage was being put in front of lawmakers and how false these claims were. This wasn't uh, these hearings weren't even really official state legislative hearings. Absolutely. Typically, you know, you get press releases about, you know, the House committee on whatever's meeting, the Senate committee on whatever's mm -hmm. meeting. But this was kind of just an ad hoc group of people that happened to be lawmakers, that happened to be in a capital room, that happened to hold things that were similar to a hearing format. And so at the time, we were under no illusion that this was any sort of legitimate hearing with any sort of legitimate premise and commitment to truth and facts and things. And so that's a huge factor that will be at play with the special grand jury, like tomorrow's reported on, is, you know, you can get away with a lot of things, but uh, false testimony to legislators and false testimony, things that could be provably false are something that, you know, you're having to weigh and consider that uh, I think there was, I think it was uh, also around that same time, there was talk in the state Senate about wanting to uh, change the rules and change the laws where you couldn't lie to a state senator in a hearing and then the Senate themselves <laughs> held these hearings. Uh, uh, I'll put the hearings in air quotes on the radio that were just full of a bunch of falsehoods about the elections. And so, you know, it's been a year and a half since those things have happened, but I think we're quickly entering the find out phase of what the true impact of those hearings were. 
And we know that D.A. Willis is keenly interested in Rudy Giuliani and those hearings and air quotes as Stephen mentioned. Um, you know, that that hearing was led by William Ligon. He invited Rudy Giuliani. And what was weird about it is that, you know, not only did he kind of hand it over to Rudy Giuliani to talk for almost seven hours, but he didn't allow senators to ask questions, which is very unusual for a hearing. Um, and what do you do in a situation if you're this judge kind of sifting through all of these constitutional questions? Where's the line, especially when you're talking about something that kind of falls under the guise of committee business, right? Like this was, you know, it looked like a hearing. It was held in the legislature. You know, it looked official. There was a, a committee report that came out at the end of this, or maybe not officially a committee, but a report on like Senate, Senate stationery uh, that kind of, you know, that, that William Ligon wrote that kind of echoes a lot of the falsehoods that Rudy Giuliani and others were saying, but it didn't for example, allow all these election workers in Georgia to respond to some of these claims that were made against them. Um, where, where is the line between kind of legitimate legislative business and kind of extracurricular political activities that kind of are completely outside of your duties as a legislator? Uh, Judge McBurney has mentioned one thing he thinks he will allow is asking these legislators who they might have talked to outside of the legislature, a legislature mm. groups and outsiders who might have advised them. So that'll be interesting. That might be able to point Bonnie Willis and others to folks in the Trump administration or advisors that might have helped them. But it also will make it a lot harder if they're going to have to try and subpoena folks who don't live in Georgia, for example. That opens up a huge can of worms. Um, all right. We're going to be following that story as it develops and see exactly what kind of guidelines uh, Judge McBurney does uh, lay out that allows uh, uh, certain questions to be asked of uh, of uh, these uh, people who've been subpoenaed. Um, let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're joined today uh, by a new panelist, Kenya Hunter, who uh, covers health news for uh, Capital B Atlanta, uh, Chuck Williams of WRBL-TV in Columbus, Stephen Fowler, our own GPB News political reporter, and Tamara Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC. Um, there was no let-up in uh, demonstrations uh, uh, against the decision by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe over the holiday weekend. And I want to talk about that for at least a few minutes here for a couple of reasons. First of all, Stephen, I think you did just a, a remarkable story laying out in great detail what the impact of Georgia's uh, abortion law can be exactly where we stand with it now. And, and I want to ask you about that in just a minute. But, but I want to start by asking you, Kenya, because you've been doing a lot of reporting as a health reporter on the impact of this decision on the black community. And um, I, I want to read just a little bit of what you wrote, even before the decision uh, finally was made public. Um, you point out that black people in Georgia represent 65% of the abortions in the state, even though they're just one-third of the population. And that according to a study from Emory University, abortions for black people in the state increased 16 percentage points between 1994 and 2016. Um, and I, I guess, first of all, the question is, why is that the case, which is what you talk about in uh, a couple of articles you've now written about this issue and black women? Yeah, I, so in talking to the wonderful experts that we chatted with for the story, I think one of the things was about choice. Um, you know, when it comes to choice, that really matters when we're talking about abortion because kids cost a lot of money. Kids cost an incredible amount of money. And so when it comes to black folks, um, you know, not being able to seek out an abortion and being forced to carry a pregnancy to term and parent, it can put black people at at risk of, of poverty because kids just cost a lot of money. And we saw that in the in the Pew Research um, 
um, document that we that we cited where Black people are more at risk for um, economic disadvantages. So that was one thing, but also um, we also were wondering if the if maternal mortality in Georgia also matters in that situation as well, because you know as we know, black in the in the country, black people are more at risk for to die from pregnancy, but especially so in Georgia, where you're like more than two times more likely to die from pregnancy if you're black. And I mean, even with the overturn of Roe v. Wade, one researcher out of Colorado is predicting that um, maternal mortality could increase, specifically for black women, could increase by 33% if people are forced to carry pregnancy to term. So those are just some of the reasons that we chatted with um, experts about when it comes to why we make up nearly six, nearly two thirds of abortions in the state. And of course, one of the other issues is access to health care in the black yeah. community, um, which is which is uh, uh, more challenging in many uh, uh, parts of the state than uh, than for other uh, Georgians. Uh, Stephen, you just give us a, 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 a people should go to the GPB News website and read your whole article. But just tell us. We know that right now we're waiting to hear uh, what federal appeals court is going to do in terms of whether to allow the Georgia law that all but bans abortion to go into effect or not. But talk to us a little bit about where things stand and where they're headed. So the Georgia's abortion law has a couple different things that it does. Um, and currently it is still legal because of this appeals court ruling, like you're uh, mentioning. And I mean, one of the key things that Georgia's law does that could hold it up in the courts even further is this concept of fetal personhood, which is language inserted that would basically go and change a definition almost at the very beginning of the Georgia State Code, you know, at the very top introduction to everything about the definition of what a person is. And in this law, Republican lawmakers intended on putting it in there to kind of do some backdoor social safety net thing if they were going to require more women to carry pregnancies to term and not allow abortion. It would do things like make a father start paying child support as soon as the pregnancy is detected. And it would do things like uh, count an unborn fetus in the census or in population counts. Um, but there are some other elements to that that could hold it up because the definition of a person has changed. Uh, there are a lot of references to what a person is in existing state law that hasn't been considered. For example, something that's mentioned a lot, can a pregnant woman drive in the HOV lane? Because technically, are there two people in the car? And there's just a lot of other things that, uh, broadly speaking, is not addressed by doing this sweeping change to the definition of a person in the code. So that's something about Georgia's law that when it was drafted in 2019, lawmakers thought could be a question that could get Georgia's law in front of the Supreme Court to be the one to overturn Roe versus Wade. But now that it was the Mississippi case that did it, you have Georgia's law that still has to be decided in a way that other states that have trigger laws or other things don't have to decide. Chuck, um, we're seeing that in some Republican states, there are efforts to take the overturning of Roe even further. Uh, and there are legislators, Republican legislators, who want to come up with a Texas-style uh, law, the, the law that allows people to essentially sue um, uh, to uh, uh, stop uh, an abortion from going through. Um, they want to do the same in terms of interstate travel. There are states that are looking at if 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 uh, if I know that a woman is planning to travel from Georgia, assuming the law goes into effect here to Illinois to have an abortion, then I have the right to sue to stop that abortion from going forward. Now, whether or not that's going to happen in Georgia or not, you you know that there are going to be some of the most conservative members of the state legislature who are going to be interested in that kind of uh, uh, effort. You know. It's interesting, Bill. My wife and I have had some of this conversation over the last couple of weeks, particularly about the interstate travel. And I've just got one question, and it's like, how the heck are you going to enforce that? I mean, how do you enforce a woman crossing the 13th Street Bridge in downtown Columbus from Alabama where she may be able to get an abortion over here? Or, you know, how do you enforce a woman getting on a plane? What do you do to the women that assist these women, whether they give them a ride halfway 
do a 12 hour drive and they give them a ride halfway to North Carolina where abortion is legal. I mean, the, what do you do? I mean, we've spent a lot of time in the last 15 years using HIPAA regulations to deny information when it comes to people's health care. So is that out the window now? I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm baffled here in how, where this goes and how you enforce it. Uh, Tamara, there's another extreme case that, about personhood that is being made in a couple of other states. There are, legisl- there are legislators, conservative legislators in a number of states that are now looking at whether if you have a personhood law, whether abortion becomes murder. Now, again, I'm not suggesting, we don't imagine that uh, a David Ralston is going to be willing to work on legislation like that in the state of Georgia. The, but, but the real point is there are so many different uh, elements that could be taken and moved forward now that Roe has been overturned, and we just don't know where things are headed. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, maybe somebody like David Ralston might not consider that. But what about the person who comes after David Ralston in that role one day? We we don't know um, where all of this could be taken. And as Stephen notes in his story about just what exactly this heartbeat law would do, you know, there's there's a, a sentence buried deep down in here that really caught my eye that says the the heartbeat law changes a code section dealing with recovering damages for the homicide of a child to include the fetal cardiac activity definition as a starting point. I wonder if that means that the father of a child could sue the mother for aborting the baby, for example. Um, There's just so many unknowns and we don't know what will happen, especially if Georgia does pass a Texas-style law that, that would kind of empower people to kind of look at their neighbor or look at the people around them with suspicion. Stephen, uh, give us a last word on this before we move on to other subjects. I think as we look at the larger political picture in Georgia and across the country with the Dobbs decision dismantling Roe versus Wade, it's really a lot about your perspective on what the role of government is, what the role of government should be, and how much the average voter's voice should be listened to. There are a lot of people that I've talked to on both sides of the issue that really feel the government's best interest, you know, state governments, local government thing, is not interested in, you know, trying to overtly track what women do with their bodies and their pregnancies and how it may or may not end. And that you're seeing, I think the interesting thing to see for me will be what the Republican Party does next, because you do have some lawmakers in some states and some places that are focusing on the criminalization of abortion, uh, you know, tracking people that might have assisted in abortion, things like that. And then you have some that are focusing on what's next. And you're seeing a rallying cry of some lawmakers saying, okay, if we say we are pro-life and if we are saying women need to carry the baby to term, then we need to do more for the social safety net And we need to do more for parental leave. And we need to do more to fix maternal mortality because Georgia also is lacking in maternal mortality, especially black maternal mortality. And you're seeing Republican lawmakers maybe say, "Okay, now that we have achieved this goal, what do we do next? And so to me, one thing I'll be tracking heading into November is some of these Republican lawmakers running what plans they offer for what to do next. And if that's enough to maybe put the money where the mouth is about valuing life in Georgia. Kenya? Yeah, one thing I wanted to note, um, there's a part of the law, I believe, that that notes that um, if you, you know, we have the exceptions in in the 2019 uh, bill for rape and incest, but it pretty much says that you are in a position where if you do want an abortion in the case of rape and incest, you need to file a police report. For Black people, I definitely think mm-hmm. that that's something we need to think about when we're talking about the, the criminal justice system and exposing more Black people to the criminal justice system, because rape is an incest or things that people, especially Black people, struggle with reporting. And so in the case of, in, in that case, I think that's something that should be considered. And also, 
um, and not just for black women, but we also know that trans people also seek out abortion and, and how, you know, we're seeing some thoughts on whether or not contraceptives will be, whether or not we'll have access to contraceptives, which that is something that everyone needs access to. So those are some of the things I think need to be talked about more as, as this law is coming into play whenever whenever that decision comes down from the, from the um, Circuit of Appeals Court. But those are just some of the more thoughts I had on those. Um, we got to get to our final break. Before we do, just one comment. Um, we now have seen the impact of a law that hasn't even gone into effect in Georgia yet. Um, uh, just this past week uh, in Savannah, the, the city's only abortion provider, after 40 years of service for the community, uh, has uh, announced that it is closing its doors. The Savannah Medical Clinic announced that uh, uh, after 40 years, Savannah Medical Cl- Clinic is sad to announce we have closed our office and are no longer taking appointments. So even before the law goes into effect, we're seeing its impact in Savannah, at least. Let's get to our final break of the show, come back and talk some more politics. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Chuck Williams, over the weekend, Politico published an article. The headline is... Kemp racing to stay competitive with Abrams in fundraising. Uh, here's just a little of the article. Uh, Brian Kemp should have no problem fundraising, and in some ways he doesn't. Uh, so far, he's brought in more than $22 million in his bid for re-election, already more than he raised in the whole 2018 cycle. But compared to the fundraising skills of his Democratic challenger, Stacey Abrams, Kemp's just collecting pocket change. Chuck, we already know this is going to be an enormously expensive uh, race. Politico's point is that Stacey Abrams' reach for national money is enormous, and that's where her advantage is, and the Kemp team is trying to figure out a way to, uh, to, to imitate some of that and get more money from national sources. Yeah, I saw that quote in the story that they that they were the Kemp folks were looking at more ways to kind of get these national pipelines. But Bill, a cautionary tale that we just saw play out in the second congressional district race down here in uh, in uh, Southwest Georgia, Jeremy Hunt using enormous PAC money raised over two point five million. Some of the estimates I've seen are three million dollars, and he came into the district flooded the place with TV ads, flooded mailboxes with with flyers. And he ends up losing to a grassroots Republican out of Thomasville, Georgia, Chris West. He loses, you know, in a couple points, but Chris West spent $200,000 to get that nomination to, to run against Sanford Bishop. So, I think we just figured out down here, money ain't always the thing that, that wins the race. And I think, Steven? yeah, and I think, you know, Stacey Abrams is heading, you know, 2018 and other things, she said that Georgia is a cheap date uh, for Democrats because traditionally Democrats haven't spent time here, haven't spent money here. That's changed. Georgia is no longer a cheap date. It's a five-star, make a reservation two years out, you know, eat saltine crackers the rest of the week to be able to afford it kind of date. And it, it just creates an interesting dynamic because both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams are now national figures for their respective parties. And their fundraising allure transcends the boundaries of Georgia. Politically, it makes it harder because it's harder to attack Stacey Abrams for taking money from California and New York and other places when Brian Kemp's doing fundraisers with George W. Bush. And it's also a lot harder to gauge your sense of support within the state because you have so much national attention and you have to court national donors and national media is covering your every move. So it's easy to lose the plot of 
what's going on in Georgia. But so far, both Kemp and Abrams are really laser focused on their Georgia specific campaigns. And, you know, also, it's not about the money. It's about what you do with it. I think a very good example is the 14th district in uh, northwest Georgia, where both Democrats and Republicans are raising a ton of cash and not spending it in ways that would probably benefit the get out the vote efforts for either parties. And so having a lot of money is great. Putting it to use in a good way, I mean, really, it's not going to come down to who raises the most money in Georgia. It's who activates that money to get the most votes in Georgia. And we're seeing both you know, Abrams and Kemp really hammer places that is going to be the difference makers. And you know, uh, I think Chuck would probably agree with me here, but I think southwest Georgia and how the candidates and campaigns treat that district will probably be the difference maker when all the statewide votes are counted. Chuck, that's an interesting uh, observation. Uh, do a quick response to that. Little places like Cuthbert are no longer being ignored. I mean, Columbus is getting, I mean, there's attention being paid here from both the high-profile governor's race as well as the high-profile Senate race. So I think you're going to see a lot of work in southwest Georgia. And now you'll have a definitional um congressional race with Chris West, many Republicans think if there is a blue wave, if there is a red wave, they've got a chance to knock Sanford Bishop out of a 30-year perch. So I think you will see that connected to the other bigger statewide races, in my opinion. Yeah, Tamar, uh, you know, I, I'm interested in Stephen's comment, it's how you use the money. It's not just about buying TV ads. Um, it's a good get out the vote efforts. It's how, how do you put together your GOTV effort? And that was something the Democrats on, with Stacey Abrams at the head of the ticket really uh, uh, focused on in an intense way and turned out voters uh, in, in, um, in, in, in numbers that previously we hadn't seen from them. Well, now the Kemp campaign, too, is building a grassroots mobilization effort. And, and so I think Stephen's making a great point when he says, how are you going to use the money beyond running every TV, uh, all the TV commercials you can? You can. Yeah, and remember, in 2018, Stacey Abrams outraised Brian Kemp. That, that doesn't necessarily mean any, anything, but what she's going to spend her money on this year is going to be very different than what she spent her money on four years ago. Um, four years ago, she was trying to prove a point that by activating voters of color, um, you know, voters that traditionally the Democratic establishment had kind of ignored or, you know, not paid as much attention to, that that could help a Democrat win. She doesn't have to do that as much. She, they helped register a ton of new voters, got them active, interested. We saw that play out again in 2020, 2021. It's going to be different from her. And now we're seeing Republicans trying to kind of implement a similar playbook. You have Kemp doing it. You have Kelly Leffler with her political group that kind of is trying to mirror what fair fight uh, and the New Georgia Project have been up to. Um, so that'll be really interesting. You know, and, and Brian Kemp has incumbency on his side now, and that is certainly a tool that he showed that he's been willing to use. We saw it in his primary battle against David Perdue. I'll be very curious to see how that plays out in the general election, especially now that you see Stacey Abrams seemingly trying to one-up Brian Kemp when it comes to a lot of his yeah. proposals, such as paying teachers more, paying law enforcement more, suspending the gas tax. I'll be very curious to see because, um, you know, Brian Kemp hasn't talked a ton about his plans for uh, a second term, but he has been fast to defend his record. Uh, Stephen, quick comment, and then I have a question for you, Kenya. Well, and then I, I think it's also important to note, too, that what we're seeing with the Democrats, both this time and in 2018, is a coordinated campaign where capital D Democrats are running yeah. everything that they're doing for Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock. Is also benefiting, you know, down ballot races, both statewide and at the legislative level. And then what we're seeing from Republicans is, you know, over the last 20 years, Republicans have dominated Georgia politics and kind of taken for granted. And so the state party apparatus has not been that strong, and especially with the official state party apparatus being kind of anti-Kemp in a lot of ways and trying to do pro-Trump primary challenges and things, you're seeing Brian Kemp step in as the de facto head of the Republican Party and using mm -hmm. his war chest, both from the campaign and from his leadership pack, to kind of guide the direction that 
you would normally expect a state party to do. And so it has its benefits in a lot of ways, but Brian Kemp doesn't necessarily have the institutional support that Democrats are bringing. And so it'll remain to be seen if that ends up being a drawback or a benefit. Um, thank you for that. Kenya, before we run out of time, I want to make a quick point about all this. Um, the Republican National Committee is trying to do outreach in Georgia to minority groups. They've got outreach centers now for the Hispanic mm-hmm. community, for the African-American community. Um, it's kind of like going back to the 2012 election after which uh, the Republicans thought they better rethink whether or not they can attract minority voters or not. The question is, um, how likely is it that um, particularly black voters as opposed to Hispanic voters are open to the Republican message this time around? You know, that's a really good question and probably a better question for our politics reporter. But I will say, though, um, I think (laughs) that (laughs) I will say, though, I as this election has been going on, especially in these overturns of Roe v. Wade and other things, I have been wondering about how Black people feel about the Democratic Party um, these days. I read something that said that Repub- even Republicans were stunned at how little has been happening in the legislature, in Congress, when it comes to the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So with Black people being very specifically um, affected by that, I have been really curious to know what Black people feel about the Democratic Party, especially in Georgia. I know um, prior to this, like I told you, I was a reporter in um, in Richmond, Virginia, and we saw the same thing where, um, you know, Glenn Youngkin did the same thing type of outreach. So, yeah, questions I have. Kenya Hunter, we're going to talk about those questions on Political Rewind in the weeks and months to come. Thank you, Kenya, for joining us today for the first time from Capital B Atlanta. Stephen Fowler, we love having you here. Chuck Williams, Tamar Hallerman, thank you for starting off the post-4th of July edition of Political Rewind so skillfully. We're done for today, but we're back with another brand new show tomorrow. So I hope you'll all be with us. And in the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.